I don't think you can buy into this job uh, and, and without the self-awareness thing. Welcome to another edition of the Columbia University Sports Podcast, The Cusp Show, where we listen to talk about the business of sports, media, disruption, careers, entertainment, all different kinds of things. I'm Joe Favorito, along with my co-host, Tom Richardson, at the beginning of November 2023, Tom. Which means it's Marathon Weekend. It is Marathon Weekend. The weather is looking fabulous, like 60 and sunny and it's i i just wrote a note to my students and i i said for those of you who are new to new york which many of them are i said you got to go try to check it out in person it's really one of the great events of the year in new york and i'd say in the sports world uh as well and then joe something i forgot to mention to you last week but as an nba fan i'm excited to check out this in-season tournament that starts i, I have no idea what this is and, okay and, and you, would you like me to explain it to you no 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 no. i want to be surprised all i know is that there's 32 different courts and new uniforms which is really yeah and right and they're cha- right they're changing the design in the court but uh, an interesting detail that i I just kind of processed when I was hearing about it this morning or reminding myself of it this morning, because I will watch, is that the games actually count towards the 82-game schedule. Correct. But it's like this little subset of games they're trying to replicate, of course, what's happening in European soccer. Um, And I think it's a good idea, but they're really working on the branding side of it to make it stand out because some of the media experts are speculating this could be a carve-out package in the next deal. Oh, for sure. For yeah. sure, there's no, no doubt. No doubt. Anyway, anyway, and I think there's a lot riding on this particular uh, series of games over the next few weeks. So yep. it'll it's all, it all kicks off tonight. So big, big sports weekend. Although we will not have a game six or seven in the World Series. And there's I, our I don't know if we had there's our segue. We never had games one to five, but that's yeah. okay. So, <laughs> right. um, which is a good pivot because yeah. um, we're going to talk a little bit about baseball, but a little bit about really more about careers. And I'll throw a little bit of empathy in there and kind of staying in your lane today. And it's it's unusual. Tom, you and I watched the same thing on our own and came up with a unique idea, which I immediately reached out to uh, my good friend, Josh Rawich at the Baseball Hall of Fame. And I said, I just watched something unbelievably inspiring on CBS Sunday morning. Do you know this guy? And within three hours, uh, the author of the book, and the book is The Tao of the Backup Catcher, the author, Tim Brown, actually got back to me. I was on Sunday and here we are on the Friday. And we're going to talk about the essence of the book that he co-authored with a back a veteran backup catcher, but has so many different lessons for life. And, and one of the things I wanted to point out is it was on CBS Sunday morning, as I mentioned before, and the host is Jane Pauley. And Tom, you and I both know Jane's son, Tom Trudeau, right. who we worked with at Bloomberg right. Sports. Right. So, and did he stay in the sports business, Joe? Is he still Tom, Tom was in, to the last Tom was in uh, the media business for quite a while. I don't know where he is now. And actually, I texted our friend um, Bill Squadron to find out whatever happened to Tom Trudeau because every time I see Jane Pauley, I think about her son. Yeah, so, uh, as as do I. And by the way, the, the we watched the separately, of course, but the thing that struck me was that it, it made me think immediately of one of my favorite music documentaries, 20 Feet from Stardom, all about the back, the famous backup singers of rock and roll history and soul and Motown history and stuff like that. It's a wonderful movie for anybody who likes uh, music, for anybody who likes great human interest stories. And 
lo and behold, when I saw Tim, our guest, starting to comment uh, in this segment, um, I was so struck by this idea extending beyond music, obviously, uh, although that the segment did feature the saxophonist from Billy Joe. So we'll get into all this, but Tim, welcome to the show. Really appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You know, it's it's funny. I, I do reference in the book the notion of 40 points from stardom, because if you hit 205, you're a backup catcher. If you hit 245, you're an all-star catcher. Yikes. Wow. That's a, that's a good way to frame it. Really good. Uh, I guess one, why don't we start with the you're, you're very you have a very successful uh, uh, career in sports journalism, both as a sports writer and as a, an author, New York Times bestselling author with books about mm-hmm. Jim Abbott, Imperfect, the book with Rick is it Ankiel? Rick Ankiel. Yep. Ankiel, yeah. Um, and now this new book, The Tao of the Backup Catcher, which, by the way, is, is a great name for for a book. Um, why don't you talk about the impetus to write this particular book at this moment in time? Thanks, Tom. I, I think that, um, so I met Eric Kratz about five years ago. And, and, you know, through my career, I always loved the story in the corner of the locker room, in the corner of the clubhouse. Um, you know, I, I just found them more relatable uh, that these, typically it was guys uh, who struggled with the game and with the life around the game because it's it's a hard game. Um, and guys like Mike Trout and Aaron Judge and things like that, I can't relate to that sort of ability. I'm not that good at anything in my life, but I I, I understand the struggle to to be good at something that uh, that you so desperately want to be adequate at. And so those guys had always uh, appealed to me. And, and and oftentimes when I was trying to learn, particularly the major league game, uh, I would end up at the knee of the backup catcher who was approachable and humble and honest and self-deprecating and, and saw the world a little bit. He'd, he'd been around, typically he was a bit of an older guy. So when, when I had met Eric and we just started talking about his journey and, and his his wife, who was such an instrumental part of it, and his parents, uh, it occurred to me that this was the guy who could sort of serve as the backbone of a story, not just about one backup catcher, not just about a bunch of backup catchers, but the story about the culture of backup catchers and who they are and, and how that maybe becomes emblematic to all of us, you know, how many of us are superstars in what we do and live with what is maybe half of the original dream or the best you can do with it? We all have these obstacles. And, and you know, sometimes we, we, we overcome the obstacles. Sometimes we learn to live with the obstacles. Sometimes we fail at the hands of the obstacles, but we sort of keep going. And so this was uh this book I, I think it sort of portrays how i view the game and how i view life and and i think that uh eric was sort of the perfect uh guy to stand in the middle of all of it because of all he's been through 20 years as a backup catcher um and uh it was really fun i, I spent two years talking to backup catchers mm. and having a great time doing it and really at the end of the day 
you know, my whole career, I just chased, all right, what story, what am I curious about? What makes me sort of uh, want to show up and go to work every day? And I got to spend two whole years doing exactly that. It's amazing um, when you look at it that way, because especially in the media business right now, it's driven by clicks. And, and, you know, the biggest names and just trying to get something out and grind it out and book writing obviously is different. But I was wondering, you look at the other two books that you, writ you wrote, Rick Ankiel, kind of a flawed character, reinvented himself. And it, you talk about a life story about reinventing yourself. And Jim Abbott, who, you know, had physical flaws growing up, pitched at the University of Michigan, had an unbelievable career. As I mentioned before we started, I actually saw him throw a no-hitter in the Pan Am Games in 1986 against Nicaragua. Um, but do you look, when you look for a book, are you looking for those type of things or are they kind of hiding in plain sight and you were able to put them together? Like I would imagine you didn't wake up one day saying, I'm going to do a book about Jim Abbott, which is going to lead me to a book about backup catchers. But um, <laughs> it, was there a theme and can you draw from one off the other as you kind of do the storytelling? You know, it's funny. I, I, not in the moment. No. Um, mm. You know, Jim had never wanted to do a book. Uh, he'd never wanted to do a movie. He felt like he was trading on something that was intensely in, uh, intensely uh, personal to him. And my first year covering Major League Baseball happened to be his rookie year. And uh, I was covering the Angels. And so we sort of started on this Major League journey together. And he just called me out of the blue one day and said, look, I'm ready to tell my story. And the reason I want to tell my story is because I want my two daughters to know who I am and who their grandparents were. And it was such a pure motivation to offer this uh, view into his childhood and into his heart and into his soul and, and how it all ended, obviously, uh, it, it ended earlier than he would have uh, liked it to. And I, I think to sort of dive a little deeper, one of, the, one of the ironies of Jim's career is that he so desperately wanted to be viewed as simply a pitcher, um, not a one-handed pitcher, not as so many people got wrong, a one-armed pitcher. Uh, and that didn't happen until he struggled. So when he was good, he was the one-handed pitcher. When he was lousy, he was the lousy pitcher. Hmm. And so I, I don't know. I, you know, that came out of sort of nowhere, but it appealed to me because, I mean, obviously I must be predisposed to these stories because a few years later, uh, Rick Ankiel, uh reaches out and says, look, I, I, I like the Abbott book. I'm, I want to tell my story after all these years, after ducking this story uh, for so long. And and then, of course, the catcher book. So I think, you know, while I go back to the obstacles, may, maybe they're not all obvious. Maybe they're you're not born without a hand or maybe you're throwing, you know, pitches all over the ballpark. Uh, but, uh, you know, it speaks again to these obstacles, these these issues that we all sort of live with every day. So, uh, no, it, I didn't intend it to be a theme, but I, I do think that it that it must appeal to me because I, I hold on to them. I grab onto them and get very passionate about these things. Hey, Tim, there's a line getting, let, let's, let's delve into the, to the new book a little bit. There was a line in the description of the book that really stuck out to me, Joe. I don't know if you saw this when you were reading the background. Um, this is the line. Backup catchers are 
sports' biggest big brothers, psychologists, priests, witch doctors, player coaches, father figures, and drinking buddies, all wrapped in a suit of today's parley, uh, polycarbonate armor and yesterday's dirt. That alone is a good line. Um, so uh, can you use that as a, as a springboard to talk about kind of the psychology? I mean, you alluded to it in the beginning, but let, let's get into that and, and what it means to kind of find the lane and find a, a value in a group that otherwise maybe you weren't thinking about. Yeah, I, I think what I learned is that a, a large percentage of these guys, uh, you know, had this big dream when they were in high school or college or drafted or early in the minor leagues. And one morning they would wake up in Schenectady or Sacramento or Asheville or something and realize, oh boy, I'm not going to be the next Pudge Rodriguez, Mike Piazza, Johnny Bench, whomever. It's not going to happen for me. I Typically it's because, you can't put the bat on the ball like other guys can. Uh, and what that line, I think, speaks to for me is what your what you do in that moment. What's your decision now? Who are you going to be? Uh, can you, What virtues, what values uh, are you going to bring to your, yourself, your career, and also to your team? Uh, to to make yourself productive in in other ways in the 21 hours around the game um and maybe that's being a big brother or a father figure or a drinking buddy or a therapist or whatever it is that you have to do beyond the physical uh well beyond the box score right you're you're not going to be in the box score again today but what did you do to help this guy what did you do? Because there's a lot of guys around you who still have their whole dreams intact so far. Um, and so, uh, and then beyond that, what are you doing to win this game today? And uh, I think that what it speaks to is uh, what we develop within ourselves to be valuable. And uh, I think exploring that with these guys and coming to that realization was was really fascinating because it felt like, again, all of us, this slop over into real life is how am I going to be uh, a good, productive person and proud of of who I am and, and what I contributed along the way? And like the last question about the last question I asked every guy was, are you proud of your career? And it's interesting because either whether they're in the midst of it or looking back on it, you're looking back, you know, it's a career where your batting average is probably 197 or 205 or or something kind of ugly. And almost all of them said, I wasn't for a long time, but I am now. And it's because I was a good teammate. Um, and I, I thought that was like really meaningful for me and because they had they had figured out a way to make others around them a little better. Was there was there a tipping when you talked to them as a group, obviously individually, but across? Did did a common theme keep coming up? Like at some point in their career, like six years in, they're like, okay, now I got to pivot just to stay in the game, or was it kind of like, you know, some of them never realized it and just kept going? Was there some commonality amongst all of them? Uh, it was pretty mixed, Joe. Honestly. Um, 
there were some guys who were still in the game who were 37 years old and still believe they could hit. Um, (laughs) And that they would, if they were just could get these 500 at bats this year, they would hit, you know, 290. And and other guys who, who realized, you know, who, who could, who could look across uh, a, a clubhouse and say, that guy's special. I'm not, at least not in that area where, you know, where the, where the, the separator of what's happening in the batter's box. And, um, you know, so, so that, that was interesting, but I think what a large majority of them had in common was self-awareness. This is who I am. Cause I don't think you can buy into this job uh, and, and without the self-awareness thing. And that doesn't mean you don't want to be great or you don't want to achieve uh, and things like that, but it's sort of about showing up, and doing the job that's in front of you today. And, and and then, you know, tomorrow, see how tomorrow goes, but but be committed to whatever it is today. Uh, and, and that's what, in, in, in the game that's so analytics forward, what I found interesting, a lot of GMs were talked about, it. Theo Epstein was really good on this topic, and Andrew Friedman, about how you can construct a 26-man roster and 25 guys fit into that model statistically fit into that model. How are we going to score the most runs and prevent the most runs? One guy stands outside of that model, and that's your backup catcher, the guy you don't have to worry about, the guy who's grinding, the guy who shows up, the guy who's a good person, the guy the manager never has to worry about, never has to uh, explain why he's not playing that day and shows up every single day knowing he's not going to play but prepared to play. Uh, and so let, me, let me just okay, do a quick follow-up to it because sure. I'm really curious about that point. Mm-hmm. Is that factored into the drafting and the trading? Like, mm-hmm. do they recognize they need that guy and they literally profile him beyond the analytics, like personality-wise? Uh, I would say more in the trading or the acquisition mid-career than the drafting. Right. Um, okay. Obviously, right. you probably don't know it when they're yeah. 17 obviously, or when you're 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 drafting, you want to a young man with good character, who's a good teammate, you know, because you're trying to project a 17 year old, say into a 24 year old body uh, and figure out what happens in those seven years. Uh, So, so that gets difficult, but absolutely when, you know, during free agency or during, uh, uh, during any sort of trade scenario, it's a lot about who do, who's going to get along in the clubhouse. Who, who is going to help us again win games in in, in otherwise invisible places? Mm. Um, Tim, you talked early on. You mentioned uh, Eric talked about his wife, uh, and one of the challenges that any anybody has is time management and work life balance. Which I don't know if work life balance actually exists, but I've heard I've heard that it's out there somewhere. Um, <laughs> These guys, and I've talked to a lot of assistant coaches in various sports about the transient nature of going from place to place. Um, with all of them, you know, I'm sure they all didn't have the perfect spouse or the perfect life away from the field. But can you talk a little bit about that, about the work-life balance, especially when it came to Eric and how the family really kind of held it together? But were there moments where they looked at it and said, what the heck am I doing here? I got to get a regular job. All of those. Um, you know, Eric... 14 different organizations. I counted up once um, 120 different transactions in his career. Um, And 
So constantly on the waiver wire, wondering if someone's going to call, uh, oh, I'm being traded again. Oh, they, you know, he was very excited to be in Milwaukee. And then they signed uh, Yasmani Grandal and he had to spend an entire spring training knowing that he wasn't going to make the team. But uh, yeah, er so Eric met Sarah in college. They got married soon after. They had three children. And uh, as I write in the acknowledgments, um, I don't think there'd be a book without Eric Kratz because of all that he, not only what he did, but also what he brought together in my head and my heart. But I don't think there'd be an Eric Kratz without Sarah. And, and the way they sort of propped each other up, um, the way they scratched together meals on the road, she traveled uh, with him as much as possible. They, they, and she encouraged him to keep going, mm. uh, that, that this would only come along for a certain period of time in their lives. She encouraged him to grab a hat from every place he went and a, and a jersey to remember these days. And I think it all started, and it was sort of a very sweet story. Her, her father was dying of cancer when Eric was in college. And one of the things he loved to do was to go sit on this little grassy hillside with Sarah and watch Eric play. And I think that, uh, you know, every ballpark she went in and watched Eric play. And there were some days, you know, there were 50,000 people in the stands and ESPN was there. Every one of those was a little grassy hillside sitting next to her dad. And, and I think so uh, her dream meshed with Eric's or whatever was out there for him, you know, and that that dream sort of bounced around. And he he had strong feelings about quitting. His father talked him out of it once in, in a ball said, no, why don't you just hang in there till the end of the season? Who knows? And sure enough, he got hot with the bat and he felt better again. Uh, I, I think he went through a lot of these things. This is, you know, what am I doing? I have children. I should be uh, you know, providing for them. Uh, we should not have to dragged them as they got older in and out of different schools along the way. Um, but Sarah kept it together and, and I think allowed this and, and to happen. Good stuff. Can I, can I ask um, just shifting a little bit, mm -hmm. but we're living in the age now of the golden age of docu-series and docu-dramas, the behind the scenes, the human interest stories, which I know you have specialized in through most of your career you covered the Lakers, I believe, for about five years. I did. And this occurred to me thinking about this conversation. Winning time has been, was at least initially a successful series. It's not been renewed, I understand. How much creative license can be taken when you go from like what really happened to what you want to present, let's say, in a very competitive entertainment environment where you have to take make something a good series? Because there's so many examples of that in sports right now. I just watch quarterbacks. You know it's being edited and the narrative is being done in a certain way to make it good entertainment. Can you talk about that? Does that make any sense to you, that kind of dichotomy? Um, no, honestly. You know, I've, I've only lived in that area where there is only the truth, only the mm -hmm. facts. Um, what if Netflix calls you and wants to option 
the power of the <laughs> a backup catcher. It's not a crazy idea. Well, Eric's the like MVP that, of the I World feel like Series. That movie's already been done, right? It, it, yeah, so right. I kept getting like as I was moving along, people going, "Oh, Crash Davis." I'm like, "Yeah, I guess." But like, no, let, me, let me rephrase the question: If you, if when you watch Winning Time, did you watch Winning Time? I did not. Time? No. Good. Oh, okay. Then yeah. maybe it's no, oddly enough, question. you know, I, I think yeah. I was going to. I, I would love to get a, someone who really knows the Lakers of that era to comment on it because you know it's been controversial. Jerry well, West I, apparently was outraged by it. Yeah, I know. I know the author of you know, the guy Jeff Perlman wrote the book, yeah. and he and I right. speak occasionally. And uh, I think he was really invested in it, and really sounded like he. I don't want to speak for him, but it sounded like he enjoyed the process and the product mm -hmm. and and things like that. Um, right. so yeah, it's, it's hard for me to say if they were, and, and I, from what I understood, they were going to move into the era that I covered the Phil Jackson, Kobe Bryant, Shaq, uh, all those Jerry Buss was getting older. Um, and Jeannie was sort of moving into a, a, a more forward position there. And I wasn't sure how I felt about that. Uh, I, I didn't know if, if I would watch that either, because I I, yeah. I, I lived through that. I remembered that. So uh, I, I understand that it's entertainment and, and people enjoyed it. Uh, but I, I just, I don't know. I just didn't have any interest in it. It's, you know, I just want to add one more thought on that show. It's just an interesting thing. So I happen to have watched both the documentary about Purdue Pharma and the opioid crisis. And I watched Painkiller, which was a docudrama with Matthew Broderick. And I felt like in a way, watching each help enjoy the other more or learn more. Like, I feel I've got a really good perspective on it, but I know that liberties have to be taken in docudramas. And I've heard there's been endless articles about Lakers aficionados complaining about the inaccuracies or whatever. Um, anyway, it's something I think about as I watch a lot of these interpretive narratives of history. Um, because I, I think I, I think it's important for all of us to think about like what we're actually witnessing. Like, how accurate is this, and is this just kind of done for the sake of the audience or or what? So, Joe, any thoughts on that? Because obviously you're a fan of these. It, it's a shame we couldn't bring Lincoln back to see what he thought of Daniel Day Lewis's portrayal uh, <laughs> of him. He would have said, "Hell of a job by Daniel Day Lewis. He's a good yeah. actor." Um, <laughs> having lived through some of that having done a play on Larry Bird and Magic Johnson. Well, that's right. You know this topic and, well. Right? And it's just hard to see other people portray them who don't look or sound like them, although that's the interpretation, which is why I didn't I didn't watch a lot of it. I watched some of it. Um, and friends I know who still around the Lakers, you know, even people like Gary Vitti, you know, looked at it, who was a legendary trainer for the Lakers, uh, looked at it and thought it was fun and it was okay. But uh, obviously – you know, Jerry West, I know for a fact, talking to some friends at the Clippers, just couldn't get over how bad it was and how misrepresented he was. But, you know, but that's entertainment, as you yeah, said, Tom. Right. So you can that would argue. explain the lawsuit as well. Yeah, exactly. I'll, I'll give you the analogy. I'll watch a baseball movie, and if the character Eastbound and Down, remember that show? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It did. Many powers and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Every time they showed him throw a ball, it looks like it's the first time he'd ever tried it. Yeah, and it basically ruined the show for me. Yeah. I'm that guy. Like if if a, a if in Bull Durham, for example, um, you know Kevin Costner couldn't throw a ball well, I'd be like, you know what, this isn't any fun for me anymore. I'd no longer believe that this is accurate. So right. 
it's like it's like Ray Liotta throwing being shoeless Joe Jackson only throwing with the wrong arm, you know, that, which stuff right. like that. But anyway. Right. Well, do you know that uh, um, in uh, the Robert Redford, uh, uh, the natural, the natural, in the natural, in the book. So you see the movie a bunch of times. I read the book, and early in the book, they have uh, the character pulling a ball down the left field line. And it just, I had to stop and put the book down because all I knew of that character was being a left-handed hitter. Yeah. Um, so I, I didn't even realize that uh, that, that would, was not accurate. So. And by the way, we don't even have to touch on Moneyball because I, our students, I ask like, how many people saw the movie and half a dozen hands go up. And then you ask how many people read the book and nobody's hands go up. And they're like, does anybody know that Tim Hudson won 20 games for the Oakland A's? And you're like, oh, I had no idea. It was just sure. like, you know, right. so yeah. anyway. Um, so I have a question as we kind of, uh, not to wrap things up, but I want to kind of pivot to the, the real life examples, because I don't think this is a baseball book. This is a life lessons book. And, and have you heard from people already, even though it's still fairly early when the book came out, from people in the business sector or uh, other areas, maybe even clergy who've looked at this and said, man, this is great. Can you come and talk to our people about this? Or I can relate to this even more so. Um, you don't have to go into specific details, but has that already happened? Because it's certainly going to continue to happen. Yeah. Well, the book came out in uh, mid-July. Right. And I've had really interesting emails and conversations with people. I, I remember early on uh, an early um, uh, early concept of the book, my, my wife read it, a manuscript. And I said, well, what'd you think? And she goes, I think I'm a backup catcher. Mm. Uh, and she's not a baseball person at all. And so, yeah, since the book came out, I've, I've heard from people I wouldn't have thought of, um, stay-at-home mom and dads who feel like, you know, perhaps they're being forgotten in the world, you know. Or I heard from a prison guard who felt like he had a really wow. difficult job and people overlooked them. EMTs, first responder type people, military people. I had a hockey fourth liner reach out and say, oh boy, do I get this? Uh, so yeah, it's been it's been really rewarding in, in that respect because one of the things that I had to make a decision on along the way is do I want to include a chapter that vividly points out how this relates to the real world or allow people to come to their own conclusions, to to finish the book and say, boy, you know, maybe maybe I should conduct myself a little bit more like a, a good backup catcher and decided in the end it was just too clunky. I didn't want to swing a sledgehammer at people. I, I, I did want them to come to their own conclusions on it. Um, so uh, yes, I, I think that's, that's it. That's been the cool part about it is that people get it. Mm -hmm. Can we talk for a minute about <clears throat> the state of sports writing and sports coverage. I mean, you have a long career in this business. What's what do you, how do you feel like sports writing has changed? Like the whole way media is handling this industry. Well, like you guys, you know, I started when there was no internet and no cell phones and certainly no uh, social media, and so I think that's the major change. Is I, I remember going from the LA Times to Yahoo Sports and immediately thinking, I can't tell if I'm always on deadline or never on deadline. Um, <laughs> and 
and what it became is this really kind of hectic frenetic existence and i didn't really like it very much i think that you know i've been through all of it through through newspapers being strong to newspapers teetering to uh you know sort of the startup yahoo thing uh to mass layoffs including myself and uh, experiencing the ups and downs of it and you know i don't want to be the old guy i always, always ask my wife i'm like do i not like this because i'm old and like the you know like the old ways and that's what i'm comfortable with or do i not like this because it's not as good a product and you know the answer varies <laughs> from her uh, but um i don't know you know it just to be in the middle of it felt different you know it's now it's how i stay informed you know mm -hmm. I'll roll through Twitter and I'll roll through the New York Times and Washington, but it's all so easy. It's right there. You know, I don't have to, I'm recovering the Yankees in the late nineties. The way you figured out what everybody else had written is I get, I get out of my house and drive down to the market and buy eight different newspapers and drive back to my house and read the newspapers. And, and now it's gone so quick. So, um, you know, I think that it's, more difficult i think it's becoming more of a young person's game because of the we talked about the work-life balance it just never ends i think this uh mania this manic attempt to be first on everything where scoops mm. are measured in seconds now where they used to be measured in days has has i believe sort of diminished the product at times uh, nobody ever tells me what it means. They just tell me what it is. Uh, the why that, you know, is is sort of lost in it because you're on to the next thing. You know, I, oh, I broke that story. Let's move on to the next thing. So, uh, you know, at the same time, I'm rooting for for all these folks to to be great and to keep going and, and for the next generation to come in and maybe clean it up a little bit, I guess. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't, I'm not, probably as confused as anybody is where it's headed. Join the club. Um, <laughs> I have one more question about the book before we get to our, our last uh, last couple of questions. What was the biggest surprise you had from talking to these guys? Did something like come so far out of left field? I'll tell you. So when I first sat down, I wrote a list of, it must have been 200 backup catchers, uh, sort of this wish list thing. And I thought, man, I'm going to start calling these guys, and every one of us, one of them is going to be insulted that I'm doing a backup catcher book, and now I want to talk to them because of egos or whatever. Hey, I, you know, I, I was a number one catcher that year. Does that mean I'm a backup catcher forever? Um, and every one of them embraced it so much; they were like almost proud of it because of um, because of all these other virtues that we talked about and. Uh, so I thought that was really cool. I thought there'd be some pushback, especially from the more well-known guys. Um, you know, a, a guy that was really embraced it was uh, John Flaherty, who's, who's mm -hmm. a New York Flash. guy. Lives and, 10 minutes from me, as a matter of fact. Yeah, right. Yeah. And and he uh, he was a number one catcher for a long time, but almost – sort of wore the backup catcher thing as a, as, a, as a badge of honor that that he had done this duty and done it well. Uh, because I guess in some ways it's, 
it's easier to be a number one catcher than it is to be a backup catcher because you you, you know you get the money and you get the playing time and you get the uh, the acclaim and things. Not that John was never a big acclaim guy, but there is something special about doing this job well. So I think that's if one thing really surprised me, it was how. Um, again, how proud these guys were of being this 26 man. Mm. One other thing before we get to, at least for me, Tom, um, it was interesting that you said that because the other part of this piece was about a saxophone player who wanted no part of the front being part of the front. Um, Did you ever get a sense from any of these guys that they didn't want to be the guy up front? They like the lack of, let's call it day-to-day pressure and doing just kind of their job? No, I I don't think they were built that way. Mm -hmm. You know, I think you have to remember that these were guys in little league, they were the best player on the team, probably played shortstop and pitched in Mm -hmm. high school. They were the best, maybe the best player who ever played at that high school Uh, probably were if they were drafted high. Um, And, uh, you know, probably the quarterback as well, and the point guard on the basketball team. They were they were stars, and and I think that they intended to be stars all along, and had already gotten comfortable with that, and and assumed that that was the the logical next step, right? And and even at, for periods of time in the minor leagues, they were they were the guy. So I think they all had to live through this period of can I be this other person. And I, th- I, I, I thought was some of the interesting conversations I had was uh, this type of player, this type of teammate, born or bred, um, mm. nature or nurture. And I really came to believe that uh, I think you can teach someone to be a, a decent catcher, right? A good catch and throw guy. I'm not sure you can teach someone to be a good human being, to be a great teammate. I think that's that's your parents and so many of these guys, their parents were were blue collar. You know, his dad worked at the prison. Eric Kratz's dad was a butcher uh, that that there were values that were instilled in them, how to be sort of this decent human being. And, and I think they carried that with them. So Kardashians don't make good backup catchers. I guess, well, I, I think they would probably turn down that job. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cool. Not fashionable enough, Joe. Yeah. My last they, question. They probably would we... be good backstops. Yeah. Before we do the final segment, um, Tim, actually sure. taking, a note, um, yeah. uh, taking a note from something you just said. Okay. Um, what does a modern book tour look like? What do you, what is, yeah. How do you actually promote a book circa 2023? I'm really fascinated by that question. So it was about for a solid look the book industry is like a lot of other industries right now right they're trying to figure out how to make their money so what i basically did was i sat at this desk in this room and did every radio show in the country and did every podcast and did every um uh, every tv show that called i did it all um and did not leave this house um, Eric, Eric, who was great, actually went to Citizens Bank Park and signed some books there and went to Lehigh Valley where he played multiple times and signed some books there. But generally speaking, it was just this that, you know, that I'm sure 
famous authors and and all go on these fancy signing tours and everything but that was that was not it i i honest i'll be honest with you the the notion of showing up at a bookstore and setting up a table and having a stack of books about backup catchers next to you horrified <laughs> me horrified <laughs> me i was so afraid i was just going to walk in with 30 books and sit there for two hours and walk out with 29 of them because, you know, my, my brother-in-law was nice enough to come in and buy one. Mm. Uh, so I, I don't know. <laughs> uh, I, I was semi-happy that they didn't ask me to go do that stuff, but there wasn't, you know, it, it just wasn't part of it anymore. Yeah. Mm. Boy, a lot easier than it used to be, huh? Yeah, cool. maybe, maybe. Um, our last two questions. Um how do you stay, and you touched a little bit on this, but how do you kind of stay up to date on everything that's going around, even today, regardless of whether you're doing research for a book? And then the last question, which we've touched on a lot of this, but any other pearls of wisdom you would give for the job changers, the career changers, uh, the young people coming into any industry, especially given all you've learned from these guys, not just in this book, but in the other two as well? What was the first question again, Joe? Um, the, um, uh, how do you stay up to date with everything? Oh. Uh, I'm a big reader. I, you know, it's funny you were earlier, you were talking about, um, the, the opioid shows on Netflix and everything. I'm the guy who, when a movie comes out, I got to go find the book. And that gives me, so I read empire of pain before I would watch any of those things. When, uh, okay. when American Prometheus came out, I had to go buy the book and read the book first before I felt like, it was okay to go see the movie because <clears throat> that informs me. And uh, so I, you know, I, I, I read, I go to the gym every morning, then I come home and for three or four hours, I just read what's out of the world and scare myself half to death. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, the being out of the day-to-day -day baseball game thing has been really cool because where I would spend a lot of nights watching baseball or at baseball games, I'm now sort of mixing it up. I've got season tickets to the hurricanes and, and trying to sort of find other areas that might interest me and um, you know, where my other passions lie. So uh, I just, I'm a, just a knucklehead reader. And maybe that's doom scrolling is what they call it now or something. I'm so afraid of what's happening in the world that I, I guess I got to know first before it all blows up. Um, cool. And in terms of advice, you know, for, for young folks, you know, I think you have to look around and, you know, it's funny. I was talking to a professor at university of North Carolina the other day. And I said, I'm so lost because I, I know when I started, you would go, you know, I was 21 years old or something, and you'd go cover a football game for the Valley section of the LA Times, and they'd give you $25 for a, a graph or two. Uh, and, and that's where you, you started by showing up and, and sweeping the floors if that was what they asked of you. And those, I don't know if that exists anymore. Um, but and I, and I asked him, I said, what do you tell uh, students who ask you that question where, where it all seems so out there now that it's so many different things happening and, and you can't be sure what's going to be here tomorrow. And he just said, look around to see what's successful. For example, one of his students 
went to work for Fangraphs, writing for Fangraphs, mm. because the, the, the betting thing has gotten big. Another student went to a radio station that is still committed to, uh, you know, they have a website where there, there is writing there. Um, basically, follow follow the money. Who Who is being successful right now? Uh, and what looks like it's going to last for more than a, a couple of weeks. So mm-hmm. I wish I had a better answer for that. I don't, um, I don't know how it works. If, if it wasn't just showing up and working hard and trying to get better at things and understand the game and try to be a little bit better writer. Um, I, I, I'm frankly a little bit lost on, on how you get to um, anywhere that you're, you're trying to go right now. But I actually, I just will add to that, uh, Tim, and just say that, that I think that's actually really good advice. I, I always say the line, look for the look to get on the right trend line, right in terms of the area of the business you're going into. So if you if there's a great job, but it's a business that that is on the decline, it may be a great job for a year or six months, but you may not have the job in a year. But on the other hand, if you're on the right trend line, and you can get in, particularly if it's a new phase, um, a good example right now in the business world as it relates to media and every other business is artificial intelligence. So you can sit back and say, it's not going to change anything, but it's going to change everything. And if you can learn about it enough to get on that trend line somehow, some way, then you can bet that there's going to be growth in that area. And if you can find your place, there might be, it might be more of a safe haven. Let's say uh, go into, I don't know, local television station or something like that at this point. Yeah, I think you, you said it a lot better than I did. And I think I said Fangraphs. I meant FanDuel. Um, oh, okay. That uh, Fangraphs is also a good place to work, but that's yeah. okay. That's oh, a- yes, absolutely. Fangraphs is great. But I was intending to go toward the gambling element, which seems mm-hmm. to be sort of um, getting some legs now. Uh, and so they went to work there and, and, and writing for them, you know, whether it be fantasy, whatever, write-ups and things like that. Um, so it seems like a big entry point right now is the league owned sites, right? You see a lot of young writers at MLB.com and NFL.com. They've all gotten into the media business big time. Yeah. Uh, But you know, there's part of me that warns young folks as well is that that's not real journalism, you know? And so uh, you don't want to get there and get trapped into being basically a PR arm of this league because then you know, a newspaper person, no matter how good you might be, might view you as something that maybe you won't be able to break out of that mold. So mm-hmm. you have to be careful. But again, if that's the only place that's hiring, what are you going to do? You go do the job, right. do it well, be great at it and, and find your way. Well, good way to end, I think, on finding your way. I always, the advice... I've said this before in our podcast. Marry rich is another piece of advice that I give people all the time. That solves a lot of problems. So I haven't <laughs> had that chance. Anyway. So right. uh, once again, um, as, I, as we said at the beginning, Tom and I both found this story separately at the same time on a Sunday morning watching Jane Pauley. Uh, we're very glad that we did. The name of the book is The Tao of the Backup Catcher. Tim Brown and Eric Kratz worked on this story. It is an amazing life story. Anybody who's looking for a job, trying to figure out where they're going, trying to understand how they fit their role in whatever team you're playing for in whatever business, uh, we highly recommend it. It's been out since July. It'll be a really good present for the holidays for people. We hope people pick it up. It's available on every site from Amazon to Barnes & Noble and bookstores. 
Um, and uh, Tim Brown, I, I can't thank you enough for, for joining us here on the first Friday of November. Uh, the first Friday without baseball, by the way. For <laughs> it was a pleasure. I, I really appreciate it. It was, it was a terrific conversation. Thank you. Cool. Tom, you want to wrap us up? I'm looking forward to the, stream, the streaming show in 2026, uh, Tim, <laughs> on Netflix or Max or something like that. <laughs> I think there would be a place for it personally. But congratulations on the book. Great, great uh, story. Something that um, I think what resonates with all of us as we think about our lives and careers and legacies and things like that. And so I'm glad you brought it to life. And I'm I, I'm sure I, I assume it's doing well. And hopefully with Joe's good plug a second ago, we'll do even better. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so cool. too. Thank you very cool. much. Once again, you've been listening to The Cusp Show. Uh, for our guest, Tim Brown, our producer, Mike Schredder, I'm Joe Favorito, along with Tom Richardson. We will see you down the road.